millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So this is a good time to make an apology in advance to all of our listeners from the United Kingdom. We are going to be sloppy and use Great Britain or Britain and United Kingdom interchangeably. Now, for those of you who don't know the difference, the United Kingdom is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Great Britain is just England, Scotland, and Wales. The United Kingdom includes Northern Ireland. So Great Britain is that big island, and Northern Ireland is the part of Ireland that is part of the United Kingdom. So we're going to use both interchangeably. We mean the United Kingdom every time we say Britain, but it's a little hard for us Americans to keep that straight. So I'm sorry. Hopefully you'll forgive us, but we do have the best intent. We're just not going to go back and edit out every time we mistakenly say Britain or Brits and replace it with United Kingdomers. So thanks for the patience and let's get back to it. Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today's show is going to be about Brexit, and you might have heard Brexit. Brexit. You might have heard Grexit and Spexit, and maybe even Pexit, and all it really means is British exit from the U- European Union. Hence, wait, where does like Spexit and Pexit come from? Spain and Portugal. Oh, Spain and Portugal, and then Greece. Oh, yeah, back when they were kind of having. Well, Greece obviously that was a big deal, but Spain and Portugal were having like those insolvency problems for a while so anyways today brexit we're doing brexit um before we get into the uh the meat and potatoes of the show we just want to mention that eric and i were both recently guests on another podcast called women in uh women in diplomacy hosted by kelsey swemnicht and she's a she's really really great the podcast is a fantastic show she interviews some really impressive powerful high-positioned women in diplomacy. And I don't know how she gets interviews with these people, but they're really fantastic shows. So go on to iTunes and check out Women in Diplomacy. It's a great show, and we'll be on the next episode coming out. Yeah, and we've got a link to their their page, their like blog thing with all of their material on our blog thing, which is now actually at reconsidermedia.com. So you can go to that, and you'll be able to find us. The old link works, too, so don't sweat it. Yeah, let's get this party started. Today, we're talking about Brexit, which British exit from the, the Union. And importantly, it's, it's, it's good to know that that actually means the entire United Kingdom or the UK, so not just England itself. So that includes Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. 
So we're going to talk about Brexit, what it is, why it's such a big deal, and how it can potentially have really massive implications for the United States, Western society generally, and therefore the entire world. We hope to give you enough historical background to let you understand what led up to this referendum vote, um, why people in the UK feel the way they do on both sides of the party, both the vote leave camp and the remain camp, and what this could potentially mean for the uh, future of liberal democracy generally in Western culture. So there will be a referendum vote on June 23rd this year for whether the UK will remain a part of the European Union or not. It's a national referendum vote, which means that a simple single majority wins. There's two options, in or out. And um, for myself, I feel like the more that I delve into this issue, the more that I find out really how complex it is. There are a lot of fine lines. There's a lot of legalese being scripted and rescripted by all the politicians in 10 Downing and Brussels and abroad. And there's really a lot that goes into this debate. Yeah, so the leaders having this debate come from uh, all different stripes and ilks. This is a question that doesn't just go along normal conservative versus labor or left-wing sides. There's a bit of a mix going on here. And the head of the pro-remain or pro-stay camp is actually David Cameron himself. He's the prime minister of the United Kingdom and the head of the conservative party. And what's interesting is the conservatives themselves are officially neutral on the question, giving the people the choice about whether they want to stay based on an election promise, which we'll discuss in a minute. Probably the biggest name in the pro-leave or vote-leave movement is Boris Johnson. He's the mayor of London. If you know him, he requires no introduction. Uh, he's also a conservative. He's part of David Cameron's party. He's further right and more nationalistic than David. And he actually ruffled a lot of feathers with Cameron and some of the other conservatives by coming out openly to support the Vote Leave campaign. He's joined by the UK Independence Party, which made big gains in the last election. Um, and they're very, they're, basically their, their primary platform is Euroscepticism and some small parties called the DUP and the TUV. Very small. The Scottish National Party which kicked serious butt in the last election and almost swept the Scottish parliamentary regions, is pro-stay, so they're very pro-EU. And then Labour and the other left-leaning parties, plus the pro-United Kingdom Northern Ireland Party, uh, UUP, or the Ulster Unionist Party, they want to stay. So it's actually, as far as parties go and parliamentarians, there's a lot more stay than leave. Most of the Conservatives are neutral, the leave parties are pretty small, and there's even a number of conservatives, including people in David Cameron's party, or sorry, his cabinet, that are advocating leave. So when we say leave, what we mean is leaving the international entity known as the European Union. And what the EU is and does, and what are all the other international agreements that are sort of tied up with it and part of it, uh, is pretty complicated and actually matters a lot for the Brexit debate. So the EU itself, the European Union, has a parliament in Brussels. It almost got a constitution in 2006, which would have made it very, very close at that point to a country. But it, it didn't get there. It got blocked. So they have a bunch of laws that are passed by parliament in Brussels. Every country that is part of the EU elects parliamentarians based on the population. 
they go there and they regulate certain stuff. There's obviously a limit to what they can regulate. They don't have full sovereignty and they do a lot of like labor regulation, environmental regulation, a little bit of foreign policy stuff. And what we can, we can think of the European Union as a bit like the Articles of Confederation of the United States in the 1770s and 80s. Um, so before the United States had a constitution, it looked a lot like the EU, a bunch of independent states uh, that had united for common purpose. The difference was the Articles of Confederation had a single military. The European Union is the product of an evolution that started right after the Second World War with Western Europe, obviously the non-Warsaw bloc side, that started forming economic integration to obviously bolster their economy, but also to create a more united Europe. And so there's all sorts of acronyms that I'm not going to bore you with that started in the 1950s and have moved their way into being the European Union as we know today. But we also know that not every member of Europe is part of the European Union. There's the European Economic Area, which includes members, which includes all of the European Union and some other countries in Europe, and they have a free trade agreement. So that just means there's no tariffs. So it's a little bit like the United States in that way. The states can just trade with each other freely. There is the Schengen, which is the no passport area. So you don't need your passport to cross national lines in that area. The United Kingdom is not a member of this. There's the Eurozone, which is also known as the Maastricht Treaty. That is the single euro currency. So if you go to a country that uses the euro, they're in the Eurozone. The United Kingdom, of course, is not a member. They use the pound sterling. There is also the European Free Trade Association. Now, this is non-EU countries. The UK is not a member. It's a limited free trade agreement between Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, and Liechtenstein, who are all in the Schengen, so the no passport area, but they're outside of the Eurozone and they're not in the EU. Confused yet? Great. So there is a cheat sheet that we have in the blog that some other person made and it's awesome that will show you who's in what and we'll have a few notes about what is what. The reason we bring up the European Free Trade Association or EFTA, even though the EU and the UK are not part of it, is it's one of the things that the United Kingdom is considering joining if it leaves. So all this stuff is just background that we'll be able to draw on as we go through the episode. I think in order to attempt to understand the lay of the land right now in the UK and why each side of this particular debate thinks the way they do, we need to go back a little bit in order to better understand how English identity has developed over time. So us over here in the United States, we think England, we think, oh, yeah, going over there across the pond to Europe, right? The English have never really seen themselves as European. And the reason for this really goes back several hundred years. So throughout the 19th century, the UK's explicit foreign policy was really to not get involved in European affairs unless a transition was occurring that would fundamentally threaten the balance of power on the continent, which could there, thereby threaten the UK if one particular state was able to consolidate enough power. And that's why the UK was always on the underdog side in all those wars. Exactly. An interesting tidbit, after Wellington beat Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in, I think, 1815. That's the date. The UK did not participate in another war on the continent in terms of actual infantry until World War I. They were involved in the Crimean War, their navy was, but they did not actually send troops back to the European continent for 100 years. So the UK tends to stay out of what they see as continental affairs 
or have tended to stay out of what they see as continental affairs when they can. As a result of their throwing their weight behind the underdog to counterbalance power on the continent, the UK has tended to be somewhat skeptical of the concept of shared sovereignty, which is an idea that comes up a lot when discussing the EU and the consolidation of different nations into this single area. So the UK Independence Party, as Eric mentioned, UKIP, has generally been this anti-EU group. And there, as all of these different events have been occurring in the Middle East that we'll talk about that have led to an increase in immigration and general discontent towards the increased consolidation of the EU continues, the UKIP, uh, the UKIP has sort of fed off these nationalist sentiments that have arisen in UK in opposition to what they see as increasingly shared sovereignty. So I think the English are the ones in the United Kingdom, from what I've seen in the polls, that have the strongest anti-European slant. Uh, the Scots, the Welsh, and the Northern Irish tend to be more pro-EU, but that sentiment is kind of, that anti-EU sentiment is fairly scattered throughout the entire United Kingdom. And uh, what we're going to do for now is avoid getting into too much of the different ethnic groups' feelings on this, but just generally lean back on the history of the United Kingdom, which has been around since long before the Napoleonic Wars. So it's an old enough entity that it sort of has gotten used to acting like a single block, just as the United States has. So in the light of this nationalism, uh, there are obviously some arguments for why you might want to leave the European Union other than we just don't like them. Some of these have been consolidated into a few popular arguments. We read some great articles by the Financial Times and The Economist that lay them out. Uh, it's worth noting that Financial Times and The Economist happen to both be pro-stay, so they're advocating staying in the EU, but they try to lay out the arguments pretty well. We've read a little bit of UKIP. We've read a little bit of Boris Johnson. And here's generally what people are saying for why they want to leave. So the first and most obvious is that Brussels has taken some sovereignty from the United Kingdom, and many Brits just plain don't want that. So this remi might remind you a bit of American sentiment as a whole. You know, there's some frustration with the United Nations and skepticism of binding international of international agreements that are too binding and too restricting because the United States wants to be able to make its own decisions. Some Brits feel that way as well. Free labor movement, which again, they're not in the Schengen, so they don't have a no passport thing, but they do abide by the intra-EU immigration laws set up in Brussels. So they've actually had a huge immigration influx from the European Union. Most of these, or at least the large plurality of these, tend to be poorer migrants that come to the United Kingdom for work, a lot of them from Eastern Europe. So a lot of them are very ethnically different. They don't speak the same language. So this may sound a little bit familiar for those of you who live anywhere. And you might be seeing this, this pattern happen in your own country. And there's there are, from certain economic perspectives, there's a risk of driving up unemployment and increasing those under the poverty line in need of government assistance. So the UK unemployment rate right now is 5.1%, and their poverty rate is 15%. Both of these are higher than the United States. So if you're following the US election and hearing a lot of talk about unemployment and poverty and how, you know, if, if you think it's a crisis here, or however much you think it's a crisis here, it's worse in the UK right now. 
So that's just some context for where people's heads are at as they think about immigration. The United Kingdom's growth has also been much slower than that of the United States, Norway, or Switzerland. The reason I picked these three is that they're similarly first world countries that aren't part of the European Union. The European Union's growth has also been slower than that of the US, Norway, or Switzerland. And there's a belief among a lot of citizens and businesses that the regulations from the European Union, which are imposed above and beyond UK regulations, are constraining economic growth and have been slowing the growth of the entire block. Just for context here, Britain's purchasing power parity adjusted GDP per capita, which is I think the right way to rank this, is the 27th in the world, uh, which is actually not that great. The United States is number 10, Switzerland's number six, Norway is number three, and Britain is starting to fall behind. So that number, that rank has been dropping over the past 20 years. And the labor regulations that they have are seen as particularly constraining for their capacity to grow the economy, lower unemployment, you know, and increase GDP per capita. In that vein, the United Kingdom currently can't sign its own trade deals without EU approval. So they can't make a bilateral free trade deal, for example, with the United States or Japan. And they really want to, uh, or many of them really want to. So I'm, I'm, forgive me as I say they. When I say they, I mean not all of the United Kingdom, but the pro-leave elements. So they want to sign free trade deals uh, that they think, that they believe can be very beneficial Right now, they're stuck in whatever the European Union is able to decide as a whole. They believe that the European Union is not making good economic decisions about trade and that it's holding them back. So if they leave, they'll be able to do that. The UK also sends the equivalent of half of its national school budget to Brussels. So imagine if the United States took whatever hundreds of billions we spend on school, cut that in half and just sent it somewhere else like the, you know, the... United Nations or some other group, uh, you'd have some people that are pretty frustrated with how that's being spent. And and these guys believe that that money is mostly benefiting other countries more than it's benefiting the United Kingdom, and they want it to come back home and be used there. Finally, there's a belief that the United Kingdom has lost a lot of its ability to influence global politics due to some foreign policy consensus building that's necessary in the European Union. So right now, they're sort of a member of equals or one, one of equals in this 27, I think, nation block. And what they really want to be is their own kind of heavy hitter that can run around and do what they want. Uh, so this might be some faux nostalgia, but it may be a very legitimate position as far as foreign policy power goes. And this isn't a one of the arguments, but one of the sentiments is Brits kind of look around and they go, hey, look, if we look around us like Canada, Norway, Switzerland, they're all doing great. And a lot of EU countries are really suffering right now. Maybe this isn't such a great deal. Right. So people in the UK are looking around and saying, well, hey, look, there are other options, or at least the vote leave camp is. And they're making some assumptions when they are trying to sell this to the general public there. For example, one is that one assumption they're saying is that leaving the EU means that the UK would not have to pay into the European Union's budget, which is capital that some vote leavers think are better spent in the UK. And it would avoid what many vote leavers consider to be these burdensome and costly regulations that Eric mentioned a moment ago. Another assumption is that if the UK were to leave the EU, that it would be free to negotiate these bilateral free trade deals with other major countries that they want to, like the US and Japan. And um, as Eric mentioned a moment ago, vote leave 
uh, the Vote Leave camp uses examples of these other European countries that trade freely with the EU without belonging to the bloc. So in order to better understand the solutions that exist, the alternatives for the UK, as opposed to just remaining in the EU, in order to maintain the degree of trade that they want to, we need to go back to some of the different trade organizations that exist in the the general European area. So one, uh, the European Free Trade Association, or EFTA, is really very similar to the EU, except it doesn't cover trade in agriculture and fisheries. But aside from that, the four countries that are in EFTA, Norway, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, and Iceland, can generally trade with the rest of Europe with the same freedom of movement of goods, regulations that exist within the EU. Now, the the European Economic Area, the EEA, is essentially this agreement that ties EFTA countries to EU countries. And it says, okay, well, EFTA is different than EU. EEA binds them together, except for Switzerland, because Switzerland, while a member of EFTA, is not a member of EEA. They've always been the weird ones. They have. So this is a lot to take in, but if you understand EFTA-EU is two different bodies and EEA is the binding one that excludes Switzerland, we can then kind of attempt to understand what some of the alternatives are that are being discussed right now in this referendum debate. So one is the Norway model, and that would be that the UK joins EFTA and thereby gains the benefit from all the free movement of goods. However, it would not benefit from the 50 free trade agreements that the EU has with other countries, even though it would benefit from the 25 or so free trade agreements that EFTA has with other countries. The other model would be the Swiss model, where the UK would manage their relationship with the EU through a series of bilateral agreements, so they wouldn't be tied together via the EEA. In this case, the UK would probably try to negotiate an independent agreement allowing for free movement of goods in the EU, similar to what the Norway model is, but there's no guarantee like there would be if they joined EFTA. The UK would also be free at that point to essentially negotiate bilateral agreements with other third-party countries, non-EU countries like the US, Japan, which is something that the vote leavers are pitching as a benefit of leaving the EU. The last model that is frequently discussed is the UK could negotiate an independent free trade agreement with the EU, and this is called the Canada model, because Canada has an independent free trade agreement with the EU, but is not a member of the EEA or EFTA. However, Canada's deal took five years to negotiate. So there's a time crunch associated with it. In addition to that, the UK's bargaining leverage might be somewhat weaker than Canada, since about 50% of the UK's exports are to the EU, whereas in exchange, only about 6% of EU exports are to the UK. Now, some economists would counter that exports and imports are equally important to a nation's economy, because if you're importing something from someone, it's because you're getting the thing more efficiently from them than from you. So some economists are very much pro-export, just keep exporting, keep your trade balance positive. There are other kind of classical laissez-faire style economists like Milton Freeman that would say, no, 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 both are just as important. Don't focus only on exports. And so depending on who's at the bargaining table and what their economic theories happen to be in the back of their minds, it's possible that uh, each side will have 
the same amount of bargaining power or everyone will feel like the UK is at a disadvantage. So it's just going to depend what people are thinking when they get there. Right. And it's just another part of this process that makes it all so complex and intricate. About a week or two in preparation for this episode, I went and saw a lecture on campus at UC Berkeley given by a gentleman named Richard Lewis, who's a senior research fellow at the Institute for European Studies at the, I'm sure I won't pronounce this right, but the Farai University in Brussels. And he's also a former European Commission member. So he's both a policy guy and a former politician. So his perspective was interesting. And he's kind of a big deal. He is, he is kind of a big deal is the sense I got. I mean, he has quite a bit of experience in the international politics of Europe. The way that he described one of the possible exit processes for the UK from the, UE, from the EU would be essentially the same exact way that countries enter the EU, but in reverse. This process would be capped to about a two-year timeline, at which point if the UK had not completely wound down its EU obligations, the EU would then be able to vote for an extension to allow for more time to wind down or the UK might just be left in legal limbo. And no one really knows because this has never happened before. So there's a lot of uncertainty surrounded with what the actual mechanisms would be to leave the EU if vote leave prevails. So that's what pro-leave is thinking about. Now, how this got to be a referendum is a very interesting story. Uh, If you remember, David Cameron, the head of the Conservative Party, is pro-stay. And so why is he the guy that's making the referendum happen in the first place? He's the guy that proposed it. He's the guy that promised it. And what's happening is that David Cameron is very concerned about splitting, about the Conservative Party splitting. And in, in the history of England and the United Kingdom, when a parliamentary party split, it was disaster for the government, the government being the ruling party. And they would resign, there'd be a new election, and they'd just get shellacked. And so Cameron really doesn't want this to happen. As we can see from folks like Boris Johnson and some of Cameron's cabinet, there are a lot of conservatives that want to leave the European Union. They tend to be more nationalist, more anti-immigrant, and it's more of the old school conservative party elites that are more mainstream, they're more establishment, they want to stay. So this may sound familiar if you live in a country. You might be right now seeing a nationalist, uh, you know, anti-immigration right wing start to get some power in your country if you live somewhere in the West, of course, particularly the United States. And a lot of these countries are struggling with losing vote share from their party to an alternative party. And Cameron really doesn't want these more nationalist conservatives to jump ship for something like UKIP or something else. So as UKIP started to gain power, one of the things Cameron wanted to do was get people who were split between voting for UKIP or voting for the conservatives to vote conservative. Now, he couldn't just come out and say, we're pro-leave, because he would lose a lot of the moderate conservatives who wanted to stay. And calling them moderate versus right wing is probably not fair. So I mean that he didn't want to, he wants to keep all of the leave conservatives and all of the stay conservatives, which is hard. So what he said was, okay, I'm head of the party. I get to say what we do. And if you vote for me and if we get a majority, which by the way, nobody expected was going to happen. 
He said, look, I'll just make it a referendum. The Conservative Party is going to be neutral on this, and we're going to let the people of the United Kingdom decide. This is how he avoided having to take a very, very divisive stand within his party. And so, big surprise, the Conservatives got a majority. They actually gained from the last election, in part because the Liberal Democrats were so unpopular, for a lot of reasons, that people that had voted Lib Dem ended up either voting Labour, UKIP, or Conservative, and the Conservatives were able to win an outright majority, which was great for Cameron because he didn't have to either bring UKIP on board or someone else that might muddy his policy position. So this is a great time to bring up the concept of identifying trends, which is something we talked about on our demagogue episode a little bit, how the presence of demagogues could be an indication of larger trends in society. So if you see the same thing happening in multiple countries around the world, this could be the sign of larger trends occurring in all of them. So the rise of nationalist sentiments and the splitting of conservative parties that's occurring in several countries right now, despite the differences in those cultures, could be indicative of some deeper causes leading to those events. Yes, and in light of our great talk with Kelsey on women in diplomacy, we've been thinking more about, hey, what can someone who is you know, your grad student, academic, or think tank, uh, what could they be researching that's really impactful and really important to figure out right now, sort of on the frontier of our knowledge rather than going over like the Cold War again and again? I think this is a great topic. I think it's important. I think we don't understand it. And I think any of you guys who are thinking about, hey, what am I going to be writing about next? How am I going to make my mark? What's my book? What's my thesis? I would love somebody to pick this up. And if you want some of our help, please email us or leave a comment, find us on Twitter. Uh, we'll have the details at the end of the episode and on the blog post. So anyway, Cameron actively campaigning for stay as a person, even though he's letting the party remain neutral. Unfortunately, as he did this, it of course opened the door for other people to campaign however they wanted. So Cameron, in the hopes of getting a stay vote and staying in the European Union, has been negotiating fiercely with the European Union to get a lot of concessions about remittance payments, about migration, and about some regulation to give the United Kingdom some special privileges in the EU that would make it easier to stay and increase the number of stay votes. Boris Johnson, who's the, who, as we said, is the big personality mayor of London, he's backing Brexit with some of the members of Cameron's cabinet. And really, it looks very dicey right now. Even if Cameron gets his way in the referendum, his government could be in trouble. I think if he loses the referendum, he is probably going to resign. But that's just a personal guess that doesn't really matter. Yeah, Cameron's gone out and actually, you know, negotiated successfully for a lot of these concessions. And his pitch has basically been like, look, you know, we can we have all this leverage if we threaten to leave we might as well use it and and then we don't actually need to leave because we can get all the benefits that we need and some of these have included immigration which will basically limit migrants accesses uh, access to uk benefits uh, originally cameron promised like a 7 year limit on migrants access to benefits then he got four However, the benefits actually only actually begin to roll on after the first year that migrants work in the UK and are gained fully after four years. Another concession that he won was limiting benefits that are sent abroad from immigrants who live in the UK to essentially their their children elsewhere. Initially, 
the concession was aimed to eliminate the ability of migrants to send all benefits to their children living abroad. Now it's tied to this cost of living index based on where the children are living. So immigrants in the UK can still send benefits. It's just a lot less than it was before. So some in the vote leave see that as an imperfect concession. And just so I understand, and maybe some listeners who have the same question, when you say benefits, you don't mean wage remittances in which I made some money and I could just wire it. You mean specifically stuff like entitlement payments for children, for the elderly, stuff like that, coming from the government that are sent to people not living in Britain but happen to be family members of migrant workers. That's right. So payments that you generally bucket under the category of a social institution rather than wages earned directly from a private one. Thank you. So another another issue that has been front and center is this concept of sham marriages. A lot of people are concerned that non-EU citizens are marrying an EU citizen essentially just in order to be able to work and live in the UK. So one concession is cracking down on these, quote, sham marriages. Another concession falls under this bucket of like euro safeguards, which is a pledge that the UK will not be on the hook for any future bailouts of eurozone states. So you can imagine, you know, the crisis that happened in in Greece, the UK does not want to be responsible if something like that happens again in another country. That's kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. It it's it's like separating them, but not entirely, right? They, they kind of want to be able to get the trade benefits, but they don't want to be on the hook if they need to actually send capital abroad to help bail a state out. And one of the last big ones is formal recognition that the EU is a multi-currency union. And this is actually the first legal recognition of the pound coexisting with the euro within the EU. Before this time, the pound has never officially been recognized as a currency that's allowed to exist in perpetuity in the EU. Now, for the vote leave camp, uh, these concessions are, I mean, you can argue they're really just not enough. Otherwise, they would have stopped campaigning to leave. And some folks just really see this as window dressing. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So obviously one of the big issues in this debate is trade and the strength of the UK economy. Now, as mentioned a little earlier, one of the vote leaves assumptions is that leaving the EU would be an economically sound decision since the UK would no longer be required to contribute to the EU bloc. And they would then be able to independently negotiate trade deals and not be bound by these euro-wide rules and regulations. Now, 
Some studies contradict this. There was one put out by the London School of Economics that said that the reduced income from trade would actually cut average household income by about 850 pounds. So while payments abroad would be reduced, the decrease in trade would actually be a net negative for the average household in the UK. Another study by the OECD says that the loss is actually greater on the order of like 5,000 pounds per year per household. And this is something that Cameron has pointed out in his campaign for the Remain camp. Now, the reason for this, or, or the reason for this net negative analysis is that a big portion of the UK's exports are with the, the EU. And Eric kind of covered some of the subtleties of this where depending on who you talk to, you know, exports need to be seen as the same as imports, or maybe they don't, depending on the economist. Now, if the UK leaves the EU, they stop paying this EU subscription, but British imports to the EU will face increased tariffs, basically the same tariffs that goods from anywhere else in the world outside of the EU get charged when they enter the EU. When I took my first blush at these studies, and to be fair, I did not dive sufficiently in the details to dispute them, and I probably lack the skills to do any of it. So I don't intend to challenge any of these directly, but I want to give uh, something to consider that crossed my mind. So there's this thing that economists joke about, and they say, if the data doesn't fit the theory, find new data. Um, <laughs> and what that means, in particular with classical guys, is that we have some strong confidence in these basic fundamentals, and if we're seeing data that doesn't seem to support them, we should be suspicious. Uh, so that's the benign way of looking at it. And that light bulb went off in my head when I was thinking about the TTIP, which is the free trade agreement being proposed across the Atlantic, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the free trade agreement, or not free, but the trade agreement being proposed across the Pacific, and NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. The studies celebrated by left-wing parties are those that say that these trade agreements are bad for families. And often they're saying it's bad for families everywhere and just good for corporate profits. So a lot of people, including people in the United Kingdom who are against leaving the European Union, are also against other free trade agreements with the United States, for example, the TTIP, etc. So what I find odd about this is that from the perspective of classical economics, unless there are some really weird, wonky rule differences or structural differences between these trade agreements, you would think either that, look, trade is going to help people or it's going to hurt people. And I've seen people argue like, look, we should have high tariffs. There's some American presidential candidates saying that high tariffs, let's bring back jobs. Let's stop trading so much. We need to bring things back home. And what I wonder is, is there something fundamentally different about the free trade agreements in the European Union that make it net positive for families and something about all of the other free trade agreements that are being proposed that make it net negative for families? Or is there some internal contradiction going on with the logic? I don't know. But I am sitting here thinking, hmm, what is it about these free trade agreements that is or isn't in reality different that would make their impact on families different. So again, for any of you guys who are more academically inclined in the area of international economics, if you want to do some work on this, we're very happy to help. I'd love to have the answer. 
Maybe it's the case that there's something different about these trade agreements. Maybe it's the case that there's not and that there's some fallacious economic thinking going on, which, of course, always happens somewhere. And uh, I'd love to know more about it. I hope you guys are excited and interested in thinking with that lens as you read more about this. Or maybe even there's a cognitive dissonance that exists where, just like in the U.S. sometimes, one issue trade gets conflated with another issue that people actually care about, and then they just kind of get hopped together. But that could also be an interesting research idea, how cognitive dissonance plays into, you know, the construction of different viewpoints in, in one society or another. Yeah, so send us a note if you're doing the work on it or you want to do the work on it. We'll help, and we'd love to maybe interview or feature you on a future Reconsider podcast. So get in touch. So beyond trade, there's also some big geopolitical implications of this. The European Union is a big, powerful block. It's the biggest economy in the world, if you think of it as a single unit, and also has about 450 million people. So it's bigger than the United States when all looked at together. Um, Has a lot of muscle, has a lot of military. There seems to be a trend where the Western order, which is symbolized, if not necessarily defined by the European Union, might be starting to fracture a little bit. Um, And that the United Kingdom's thought about Brexit is only part of this. So obviously we have some nationalist movements going on in Spain Of course, Scotland almost separated from the United Kingdom entirely. We talked about Spexit, Grexit, and Pexit. So Spain, Portugal, and Greece thinking about leaving the European Union because they thought they were going to get a bad deal. So there's some forces in the EU trying to kind of glue this all together. And the concessions are a little bit like throwing duct tape on it to try to hold it. And it's looking a little bit messy. But there could be this start of sort of cracking apart that starts to happen. And it could be the case that the United Kingdom's Brexit could be just a precedent setter for other countries that are thinking about leaving. And of course, what's very complicated about this is that opinion changes, public opinion changes over time. And it's one of those things that if you happen to have a referendum at some surge or nadir of public opinion, you could make this decision that's very hard to reverse in the heat of the moment. Good word, by the way, Nader. We should use that word more frequently. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a big fan. So what are the big tra- what are the big geopolitical trends going on in the European Union right now? Well, there's a lot of Eastern European countries that want in, and many Western European countries are somewhat skeptical, due in large part due to big gaps in the economy. So it tends to be the case that people are skeptical about having free economic labor and capital flow between countries with a big gap in their economy. So you might be thinking the United States and China, for example. But it's also the case that Eastern Europe is growing a little bit skeptical of the European Union's ability to act in solidarity with their best interests. So there's this group called the Weissgrad Four, which is forming, and that's Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and Romania. The Vicegrad 4, or V4, is primarily a military agreement, and they've actually created a single battle group right now being led by Poland uh, to counter Russia, because there's worry that both NATO and the European Union aren't going to be there for them when they need, if they need that military support. There's obviously lots of grumbling in Southern Europe, which is still in the throes of a major debt crisis. One of their complaints is that the euro 
which is not relevant to the UK, but relevant to the EU as a whole, kind of forces them to import from Germany due to eliminating the currency advantage that they used to have as far as imports and exports. So when your currency is worth relatively less, it's easier to export and harder to import. But now their currencies are worth the same. So they worry that this means that they are kind of being forced to import from Germany, get loans from Germany, and gives Germany a lot of power over them. And so there's a lot of fear of becoming dependent upon the Germans and making them the dominant power in Europe. And so there's this stress from some of these nationalist parties to break off and regain these independence. So there's a ton of risk and a ton of forces at the literally the periphery of the European Union to break away and push outward. And it could mean that the European order is going to be very, very different 10 years from now. Right. And the European order that exists today, this this notion of a unified Europe has existed in some form or another and increasingly unified since World War II. So what happens if it starts to fracture again? Well, there's always the possibility that we see a return to the old European order, which was essentially non-unified Europe, no Eurozone, just each country on their own. And that old European order has essentially been in a state of constant warfare since the fall of the Roman Empire, or I mean, in some ways, really, since forever, even before then. And that's kind of a crazy idea, or at least it sounds crazy to, you know, us youngsters, people who weren't around to see sort of a, a dangerous, more violent Europe, because we're so used to a peaceful one, countries that get along, this idea of a shared Western culture, shared identity, but past performance isn't necessarily a guarantee of future results. <laughs> uh, there is a boss I had that had what he called the turkey fallacy. And the turkey fallacy was if uh, you look at the average daily happiness of a turkey over a month, you know, January looking good, February good, March good, etc. October good, November really good. It's getting fed really well. doesn't know why, <laughs> but it's really happy. And then suddenly, boom, it's zero. And so it's one of those things where we say, hey, be careful of extrapolating a line too far. Because just because it's straight now doesn't mean it's going to keep being straight. It might change. I'm going to keep using the turkey fallacy every day for the rest of my life. That is, it's one of my favorites, concept. definitely. Yeah, I'll draw it for my clients sometimes, and they'll, <laughs> you know, before I drop the pen, they'll know. They'll be like, "Ah, yes, this is going to fall off." I see what you're doing, Eric. So there is a, there is a counter argument of sorts for this, and so. One of the arguments for keeping the EU together is that, hey, if it starts to fracture, it will lead to bad things. And it will, well, specifically, it will lead to a disintegration of unity in the European Union. And this would be really bad. The counter argument to the, or the primary counter argument to this comes from a specific realist school. Kissinger, for example, is not part of it, but there's a few authors like that I forget that might advocate for this. I know that one. Yes, one of my favorites. And what they would say is that agreements of this sort, agreements of unity of this sort, or integration, are an effect of geopolitical alignment rather than a cause of them. And so they have a fairly fatalistic view, not like death, but inevitability view of geopolitical alignment, where it says, look, there's going to be geographical, economic, and constructivist conditions that 
either create incentives for countries to be unified or create incentives for them to be divided, and that those geopolitical changes are going to drive these international agreements, as opposed to the international agreements creating those incentives themselves. Now, do I think that they both feed on each other? Probably. Uh, I don't want to weigh in on this too much. I just want to give you guys some options to think about it. So, for example, piggybacking on this concept of which way does the causality go that Eric outlined, which is important to think about because if interests drive multilateral institutions rather than multilateral institutions driving interests, then you might predict what happens next differently, right? Now, if it does seem increasingly inevitable that Europe becomes fractured and we fall back into different nation states driven by different geopolitical interests, some might then beg the question, well, is the Western order that has been defined by a unified Europe plus America since World War II, is it declining? And the West after World War II has really been seen and enshrined by these multilateral institutions, and they were crafted in order to essentially prevent the sort of madness that happened on the European continent in World War II and, of course, World War I, and to hold back these totalitarian governments that came to power. The UK breaking away from the Europe could send a message to the rest of the world that the Western world is divided and can't even maintain the institutions that let them solve their disagreements internally effectively. This risks putting a strain on the ability of Western societies to, to claim that their version of government is not only a good one, but an effective one. Yeah, and I would say probably the pro-leave group is somewhat skeptical about this. Uh, I've not heard anyone make this argument, but if I had to, if I was in a debate and I wanted to say that doesn't make sense, I might say that the Western order grew dominant over the rest of the world, and it happened to be in a pretty nasty way for a few centuries, but long before the European Union, long before integration, despite the infighting. Now, of course, we don't want war and we don't want infighting, but they might claim that, so you might have a hardcore realist saying, well, it's really the Leviathan effect, and you can look that up of the United States that's preventing Europe from going to war with itself. During the Cold War, it was the dual Leviathans of the United States and the USSR. And as long as the United States stays engaged in Europe, which there are some presidential candidates who are not interested in that, but as long as the United States stays engaged, it will be peaceful. And if the United States is not engaged, even with the EU, it could get dicey. So all of this begs the question, of course, for our US listeners, what are the implications for the United States? And what, what are, what's the U.S. going to do? Well, in order to understand or attempt to understand what we might do next, we need to understand that the U.K.'s relationship with the U.S. is frequently referred to as a, quote, special relationship, the special relationship. And this primarily has to do with a number of events that occurred after World War II, in addition to sort of our shared Anglo history and, of course, us coming initially from the U.K., in practice, it's supposed to mean that the UK, by providing really staunch support, above average support for US policies, can punch above its weight globally by influencing US policy from the inside of this relationship. Now, whenever I get together with leaders of the United States and, and UK, you hear a lot about the special relationship and the shared values and interests that bind us together and the way that our cooperation makes the world safer and 
more secure and a more just and prosperous place. And all of that is true. And we go back uh, a pretty long way, the U.K. and the U.S. Uh, we've had our quarrels. Um, there was that whole tea incident. And, uh, the British burned my house down. <laughs> but we, we made up. So as it relates to this referendum issue, Obama frequently, President Obama recently visited the UK and basically said, the US really doesn't want you to leave the EU. And yes, the Prime Minister and I discussed the upcoming referendum here on whether or not the UK should remain part of the European Union. Let me be clear. Ultimately, this is something that the British voters have to decide for themselves. But as part of our special relationship, part of being friends is to be honest and to let you know what I think. And speaking honestly, the outcome of that decision is a matter of deep interest to the United States because it affects our prospects as well. The United States wants a strong United Kingdom as a partner. And the United Kingdom is at its best when it's helping to lead a strong Europe. It leverages UK power to be part of the European Union. Americans want Britain's influence to grow, including within Europe. All of us cherish our sovereignty. My country is pretty vocal about that. But the U.S. also recognizes that we strengthen our security through our membership in NATO. We strengthen our prosperity through organizations like the G7 and the G20. And I believe the U.K. strengthens both our collective security and prosperity through the EU. I think there's a British poet who once said, no man's an island. So Obama also penned sort of an open uh, or an op-ed in the Telegraph, and all of this was ba you know, meant to send a strong message to the Leave camp that many of the assumptions you're making about U.S. behavior and your ability to negotiate independent bilateral trade agreements with us following a Brexit is false. Well, first of all, uh, let me repeat. This is a decision for uh, the people of the United Kingdom to make. Uh, I'm not coming here to fix any votes. I'm not casting a vote myself. I'm offering my opinion. And in democracies, you, everybody should want more information, not less. And you shouldn't be afraid uh, to hear uh, an argument being made. That's not a threat. Uh, that should uh, enhance the debate particularly because my understanding is that some of the folks on the other side have been ascribing to the United States certain actions we'll take if uh, the U.K. does leave the EU. So they say, for example, that, uh, well, we'll just cut our own trade deals with the United States. So they're, they're voicing an opinion about what the United States is going to do. I figured you might want to hear from the President of the United States what I think the United States is going to do. Uh, and on that matter, for example, uh, I think it's fair to say that maybe some point down the line there might be a, a UK-US trade agreement, but it's not going to happen anytime soon because our focus is 
in negotiating with a big bloc, the European Union, to get a trade agreement done. And UK is going to be in the back of the queue, not because we don't have a special relationship, but because given the heavy lift on any trade agreement, us having access to a big market with a lot of countries, rather than trying to do piecemeal uh, trade agreements, uh, is hugely inefficient. And this basically just completely backfired on President Obama. So the Leave camp is, of course, interpreting this with a lot of grumbling. You know, one of the interpretations is, look, this guy's a lame duck. The only person that matters is going to be the incoming next president. Now, by June 26th, they won't know who that is. They might have a good idea of who the two options are. Uh, so they might have be able to flip a coin between them. And I don't know exactly what the positions are of different presidential candidates on this. I believe Hillary Clinton is pro-stay. Is that right, Sander? Yeah. President Obama came out and made this speech. People said, you're a lame duck. And then Clinton basically came out and said, actually, also, as your potential next president, you basically shouldn't leave. Right. And she has the best odds on the betting websites for winning right now. But this was still received poorly. I mean, one of the problems is that Europeans tend to think that the United States tries to run around and tell everyone what to do, which, you know, it does. is not wrong. It does. And uh, Boris Johnson, that big vote leave guy, mayor of London, uh, brought up UN clause, which we talked about in the last episode about China, and how the U.S. is not a signatory for it. And Boris Johnson said that it was pretty hypocritical for the U.S. to intervene in this way and try to coerce the U.K. to remain when the United States felt like it didn't need to be part of these binding institutions and got to do whatever it wanted. Is he right to speak about this? Look, I think that uh, President Obama has got a perfect right to make any intervention uh, that he likes. And, uh, of course, and, and, and indeed, I, I welcome uh, the views of everybody in this debate. But I just find it absolutely bizarre that we're being lectured by the Americans about giving up our sovereignty and giving up control uh, when the Americans won't even sign up to the International Convention on the Law of the Sea, and uh, let alone the International uh, Criminal Court. Uh, the Americans have, uh, the United States, for their own reasons, their own history, their traditions, which are based on the ideas of no taxation without representation, mm -hmm. fervent belief in the importance and the inviolability of American democracy, they wouldn't dream of sharing sovereignty. So does he danger they wouldn't dream of it. So is he in danger of making America look like a hypocrite? Uh, not in danger of it. He, I'm afraid he is. Uh, there, there, is uh, there is an intrinsic hypocrisy. If that is the American argument, then of course it's, it's, it's nakedly hypocritical. So this might have added a little bit of fuel to the leave camp rather than dousing those flames. But it's tough to say. You know, we'll see what happens in June. So this referendum vote is taking place on June 23rd. We don't really know exactly what's going to happen, but sort of the best place you can go are polls and different collections of polls. So where does the vote leave versus remain balance stand right now? Well, the Financial Times, which is a UK-based newspaper and media outlet, has a really handy compilation of polls. It's a collection. It's essentially a poll of polls. And that shows that on average across many different polls, 
about 40% of respondents are voting leave and 47% are voting remain with 11% undecided. And that's of as of April 6, which is when this last meta poll was taken. The Telegraph has another poll, also a UK-based media outlet, showing 51% remain, 49% leave. So what's interesting about all of these numbers is that it's kind of close. So even though David Cameron took this gamble to put a referendum vote forward in order to maintain the unity of the conservative party, it turns out it might backfire on him based on these numbers. So in these votes to break out of either national or multinational institutions, there is a tendency for the Remain camp to perform higher than it is polling. And this has been, this is fairly consistent. If we look back at the Scottish referendum, it looked like it was going to be razor thin based on the polls, that half of Scots would want to stay, half of Scots would want to go. It turned out to be about a 10% gap, much bigger than the polls would have suggested. Now, some people predicted this, some people didn't. So what tends to happen when people go to the polls, even though they might be excited in their hearts about independence or sovereignty, is that they go, oh, God, there's just so much uncertainty in what's going to happen here. And really, maybe things right now aren't so bad. And we don't want to go through the turmoil. And so this is a bit of conjecture peering into the souls of men a bit. But it tends to be the case that people that were polling to leave or that were undecided tend to vote to stay. And so some of this is reflected in betting. Turns out when people put their money where their mouth is, uh, especially a lot of money, they tend to be pretty good at predicting what's going to happen. Not always great, uh, but pretty good. So you can bet on UK politics just as you can bet on any politics. So you can look at PredictWise if you want to follow the betting for the US presidential election. In the UK, there's a website called Paddy Power. That's one of the biggest ones you can use. Now, of course, we're not, you know, we're not making a plug for gambling here, but you can look up how other people are putting their money where their mouth is. So as of April 26th, here's the here's the odds on Patty Power. So for Remain, it's three of ten. So for every ten dollars a bet you bet, if you win or rather if the UK remains, you get an additional $3. So you'd get $13 for your 10. So which is about 77% likelihood. Leave, it's 11.5. So for every $5 you bet, you would get 11 and end up with $16. So there's about like a 31% chance based on that. So it looks like right now, based on those, the remain vote has a significant edge. And we've got a link to that in our blog so that you can follow it as much as you want. Now, with all this said, there's a ton of divided voters, you know, over 10%. Three polls in March showed that one of four Britons hadn't made up their mind. Some say undecided voters tend to vote stay. Others say that they actually remain undecided until the last minute. And we've got a image of one of the polls that The Economist does, and you can see the vote and leave margins just oscillating wildly here. And it's a lot less consistent than you might think. So people are changing their minds. It's a very fluid situation. At the end of the day, we just don't know. It's going to be exciting to watch, and we're really not going to know what's going to happen until the morning after. So you can be sure Xander and I will be 
watching this closely, and if we've got some free time, we'll be live tweeting on Reconsider Pod what the results are starting to look like. So that's the long and the short of it. There's a lot of history going into this. There's a lot of potential implications, both for you know the United Kingdom and everyone's pocketbooks, uh, and also for the West, the United States, for the global order. We're really interested to see what happens. If there's a leave, there's going to be a lot of questions to answer, a lot of scrambling that happens, and we just won't know what the world's going to look like for at least months, maybe years down the line. This is something that's important no matter where you're living, something you should pay attention to. If you're in the United Kingdom, obviously we advocate that you think thoroughly about what you're doing, do your research, weigh the pros and cons. Not going to tell you how to vote, not our job. Again, for those of you who might be interested in doing some research on this and working with us, you can email us for the moment at stc at somethingtoconsidermovement.com. We will change that email address, but it will keep working in perpetuity. You can also go to the blog, reconsideredmedia.com slash reconsider. You can leave a comment on our blog post there about getting in touch or just if you have some thoughts. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter at ReconsiderPod. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or planning to, I would like to ask you for a birthday gift. It was my birthday yesterday at as of day of recording. Happy belated birthday, Eric. Thank you, Xander. Your birthday gift to me can be going to iTunes and leaving a review about what you think. Uh, that'll help us a lot. It'll help us reach new people. We'll pop up more in the searches as people search for stuff about politics and news history and stuff like that and if you love the show you can do a gift to or you can make your gift to others on my birthday to help them get some of the scoop of what you're getting and enjoy it the same way so as with brexit and any other important decision that we citizens of democracies need to make don't let the pundits the media or the politicians do the thinking for you Stop and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.